The Football Show on Off The Ball with Sky. Watch every live Premier League game this season on Sky Sports, BT Sport and Premier Sports. I'm prepared to do anything I can well, to do play it my then. country again. Do it then. What about your start to the game? I was, it wasn't bad, was it? Why well, should have been an honest answer be a mistake? How can a modern day manager not have a mobile phone? Why should he? Huh? Yeah, very welcome along to The Football Show. Richie McCormack here with you. Thank you so much for stopping by. Paris Saint-Germain have started off the league on season pretty well. Two wins, two games... Five goals in each of them, but all is not as hunky-dory in the camp as those results would suggest. To uh, discuss that in further detail, I'm delighted to say we're joined on the line by Philippe O'Claire. Philippe, good evening to you. Good evening to you, Richie. Good evening to all of you. Great to hear from you again. Uh, nice to have you back as a regular uh, during the start of the season. But as we mentioned there, PSG, you know, on paper, have started the season well. They had a 5-0 win away to Claremont. They mm-hmm. obviously beat Montpellier there most recently, 5-2. But it's the fallout from that game and I guess in the game uh, there's been some childish stuff after it has followed on on social media has basically engulfed the club once more. So when Christophe Galtier got the job he made this claim that there was going to be less bling bling around the club that things were going to be far more you know prosaic and he was going to you know just bring it back to its roots almost and, and kind of do away with this mentality yes. of big big stars. That's fallen by the wayside pretty quickly. Oh, well, I don't know. Um, bring PSG back to its roots, by the way, is quite an interesting notion because what like 50 are years, the roots? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a very, very different club at the time. Um, no, it's it's absolutely extraordinary the amount of uh, publicity this got on, in French media. Uh, I'll give you an example of that. Um, I was supposed to be on one of the main French radio stations on Sunday evening uh, to talk about you know, pretty intense weekend of football of England in England, you know, between what had happened to uh, uh, Manchester United in particular at at Brentford and and elsewhere. But anyway, I was delayed and delayed and delayed. And I couldn't understand why that was the reason why, you know, that was the case. And then I realized uh, I was put on hold and realized they were talking about the incident. I thought this is ridiculous. How long has this been going on? And they'd been talking for half an hour. (laughs) <laughs> on a single incident. And I think, you know, we'll just briefly sum up what happened. Uh, PSG played against Montpellier. It was the second game uh, of the season in Ligue 1. They'd won the first one without Kylian Mbappé very nicely indeed, 5-0 in Clermont. This was at the Parc des Princes and Montpellier was the opponent, um, not an opponent that you would expect uh, to create much of a problem for PSG. There's a penalty uh, whistled in favour of PSG. Kylian Mbappe, who was designed, um, designated as number one uh, penalty taker by Christophe Galtier before the game took it, uh, missed it. Then there's a second penalty kick and Neymar takes the ball and um, basically, I'm going to take it. That's what he means. And Mbappe is not too happy about it. And there is an exchange between the two players. It's not um, an angry exchange or anything like that, but it doesn't look good, I must say. It's one of those things, oh, come on, give me the ball. No, I won't give the ball to you. I, it's mine. And it goes on and on and on. And then, you know, Neymar takes the penalty and scores it, as is his want. Mm. And um, so afterwards, it, it becomes, everything becomes about uh, the... Um, altercation, which it was not, between Mbappé and Neymar, 
who were best mates when in 2017 and suddenly are presented as two rivals within PSG, who's going to be the boss, the alpha male within the dressing room. This, as you said, this goes completely against what Christophe Galtier is trying to do at PSG. He's not that kind of manager. He doesn't want that kind of team. He doesn't want egos to be on show like that and so on and so forth. But the whole thing just took took off, I mean, and, and took a dimension which was just ridiculous. Everybody was talking about it. And as I said, I waited half an hour to get on air because of people talking, making hypotheses about what that meant for PSG. The fact that there had been a 30-second exchange between Neymar and Mbappe at the penalty spot in a game that PSG won by five goals to two. And their um, record for the season now stands at three games played, three games won, two, two goals against... 14 goals scored, one trophy in the bag, and top of the league. <laughs> it's all gone wrong, Philippe. It's, it's all gone it's wrong. Just got, it's just crazy. But it shows you what, what it's all about with, with PSG. Now, things have happened since then, uh, which are interesting, is that uh, I think the club hierarchy, the new club hierarchy, because it's been all changed at PSG since Galtier has arrived, and it's not just Galtier, it's also Luis Campos, uh, the sports director who was with Galtier at Lille beforehand, and they decided to call a meeting with all the parties, that is, you know, Campos, Galtier, Neymar, Mbappé, and they cleared the air. And um, I think Galtier made his point very clearly. Uh, he's not the kind of manager that you would expect to make his point in any other way. And basically, they've decided that the whole, you know, that was it. That was the end of the story. Uh, we were never going to talk about it. Obviously, they've again, and they've obviously found some kind of um, gentleman's agreement, uh, if I can use this expression, in that particular context, mm. or who is going to take the penalties next time. And now, uh, the other thing as well is, is that in France, this also kick-started a debate, who is the best penalty taker? And everybody decided to go for Neymar as the best penalty taker, because when you look at him taking penalties... Um, he looks at the keeper, walks to the ball, runs to the ball, but until the very last second is looking, watching the keeper, how his feet are moving, and therefore he can decide at the very last second, at the moment of impact, which way he's going to send the ball. Mm. So, you know, which is a very difficult thing to, uh, to perfect. Uh, Mbappe is not quite the same kind of penalty taker. But people were saying, oh, and Neymar is, so, is, is by far the best penalty taker. So I decided to look a little bit into my stats. I hope, Richie, you go ahead. I like this. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So um, I and I concentrated on penalties taken from Paris Saint Germain in Ligue 1 for both players. Now Mbappe has taken eleven. Uh, has taken, excuse me, thirteen, scored eleven, missed two, which is very decent and actually slightly above average, if I'm not mistaken, in terms of penalty taking. And Neymar has taken 22 and scored three. So he's taken exactly twice as many penalties as Mbappe. But the one difference is that he's missed one more, or if you're taking averages in, in consideration, in a way he's missed one less if you're talking yeah. about averages. So the difference is minimal, if not infinitesimal. Uh, they're both m very good at taking penalties. Neymar is not quite as good as people say he is, 
are taking penalties because when you listen to them, it's like uh, Letizia or Giroud or people, one of the, you know, these people who basically score every time. He's not quite there. And, but Mappe is by no means a bad penalty taker. He's better than Messi, for example. It's quite remarkable that there should be almost no difference between the, the records of those two players, certainly in Liga and uh, for PSG, when it comes to taking penalties and, and putting them past the keeper. And still, there would be a pseudo debate about who's the best, better penalty taker of the two and who should take them and why it's unacceptable than that so-and-so does this and unacceptable than so-and-so does that. It's absolutely ridiculous, but... It just shows you, um, you know, again, the, the, the space that PSG is taking in, into the coverage of French football in French media, but also elsewhere. We've been talking to each other for a few minutes about this, yeah. because in a way that comes to dominate um, the discourse or the analysis of, of PSG. And I'm wondering if it's got to do with the fact that, strangely enough, in 2022-23, PSG has not yet failed and that people are looking around and thinking there must be something wrong with this club because there usually is. Could it be that? <laughs> because elsewhere, believe me, it's all going very well indeed for Galtier and, uh, and the club at the beginning of the season. And they look, well, they look very, very good. Yeah. And um, they look like they're a team, um, I wouldn't say on a mission, but they look fitter, they look hungrier, they play better, they've got a new tactical system, uh, which seems to um, fit with um, the people they've got at their disposal much better than what Pochettino tried. Um, they've got a manager who means business. Uh, their recruitment has been quite clever. Um, and you're thinking, oh... Did something really change at Paris Saint-Germain? And should we actually take them seriously? Which, to be honest, in Europe, we, we haven't done, well, we haven't done ever. <laughs> um, we haven't done ever since, you know, um, we haven't done since PSG was a completely different um, club and the Qataris were not around. Yeah. But, but something has changed, definitely. I mean, the atmosphere is not the same. The quality of the game is not the same. Um the atmosphere within the camp is not the same. You carry on and on like that. But this has been the one false note, I would say, in what's been um, an excellent execution of a very, very good score uh, since the beginning of this season. I'd say on top of the penalty incident, at least from, from over here, what got almost as much attention was the Mbappe turning away when he didn't receive the ball from Vitinha in that particular game as well. That He, he turned away from the play didn't seem interested, kind of almost looked as if he, he wasn't, uh, you know, altogether with the game. And then there was that story that came out afterwards that he apparently was was dealing with personal issues and that infringed upon his attitude yes, in the game. Cool. How, how yeah. much was there to that? Um, we, we won't uh, dwell on the personal personal issues. Okay. Um, I've, I've heard the same thing and I've heard it from people whom I would usually trust. So I can accept that there are personal issues and in which case we should leave them, you know, this is the this is the place privacy we're talking about. Mm. Um, so that might have been a factor. And um, it's not the first time that Bappe has had a little, you know, he has, has behaved on the pitch as someone who was not totally interested. Uh, it's sometimes overdoing it a little bit in his reactions. He's not the only um, football superstar I can think of who does that. Mm -hmm. But I think 
far too much has been read into it. It, mm. it was. It's that the attention is is focused because it was this his comeback game on him and on them in such a fashion that you're bound to find a moment where the player is looking. You know, it's. It's. I. I to be honest, which I. I. I find this quite dispiriting because I don't think that he's I don't think that Mbappe is thinking oh I made a huge mistake by signing on this extraordinary contract one of the best ever you know uh, given to a footballer in the history of the game uh, because Neymar is actually looking really good this season I might not be the alpha male after all Uh, I don't think he's exactly that kind of player and that kind of young man um, and I think far too much is being read in, into that at the moment. I'm just curious as well, how accurate are the stories? Like, obviously, they moved heaven and earth to, to keep him this summer. And one of those agreements yep. with which they came to with Mbappe was that he'd have a degree of decision making, I believe, within the club. How accurate or not is that story? Um, there was, um, again, I wish I had a definite answer to that. And if I had a definite answer to that, I would be the most in-demand journalist on the planet. <laughs> okay. Um what I do understand is that there were, uh, when they were talking about it, uh, obviously the, his status within the team and the way that the team was going to be um, led and managed came into that. Because I think one of the major problems that Mbappe had with the club uh, was the fact that we didn't quite know where the club was heading in terms of strategy. Now, they've made some very strong choices during the summer. Bringing Galtier in is a very strong choice. Bringing Luis Campos is a very strong choice. And that really uh, cuts the club from the previous period, which was Leonardo having conflict, being in conflict, constant conflict, with every single of his managers, where you had a super powerful, super divisive sports director taking some sometimes debatable decisions when it comes to recruitment and who was um, associated with top-level managers, you know, Mauricio Pochettino, Thomas Tuchel, people like that, talking really the cream of the cream of of technical uh, coaches in Europe here. And there was constant conflict because nobody could agree on, on the strategy. Now, what they've looked at, obviously, is that this couldn't carry on, so we need to put on, put in a structure that makes some sense. And they've, they've got it. They decided to go for the Lille model. They, they looked at, well, who actually told, showed us how a club should be run, certainly on that side of things. Uh, it was Lille, when Lille won the title. And you think, well, they, they won the title with players who are not quite as good as ours, but they won it because they had a fantastic sports director, and I think everybody will agree with that, Luis Campos, and a remarkable uh, technician, uh, manager, coach, Christophe Galtier, um, who is also a, a former player, uh, who is somebody who's got um, tons of experience within Ligue 1 as well. And we put these two people together who seem to get on well, and we actually give them um, some latitude. We enable them to do their job properly, whereas in the past, it was always interference from one department into the other. And because of that, things were not working. And it has changed. So... Um, it's, it's not the same Paris Saint-Germain we're talking about. It's still owned by the Qataris. Nasser and Khalafi is still in charge. But when it comes to um, the team itself, the whole landscape has been changed. 
Mm. You mentioned. Go on ahead, sorry. Yes, sorry. I was just mentioning, you mentioned a change in, in, in tactical. Um, uh, yes, formation. They, they've, they've essentially looking at their last couple of fixtures. They've gone to three at the back, which seems yep. a way of, of getting Sergio Ramos in there. Marquinhos is obviously in there. Uh, Presley Kimpembe, who was a, I don't know, it seemed like one stage fifty fifty whether he'd stay or go in the summer is staying. He's he's there on the left hand side of defence, and it seems to be working for them. And seems to be able to get the best out yeah. of Marco Verratti in midfield, and everything from a footballing perspective certainly does seem a little bit more harmonious than before. Yes, because I, they, they had to, to think of a way to accommodate players who sometimes could look, look a little bit like pieces from a different puzzle. Mm. Now, um, but they've got certain certainties in this team, as in Donnarumma is, is a magnificent keeper. I, I know he's made some mistakes. Everybody thinks about Real Madrid game and so forth, but he's a very young keeper. And, you know, there is absolutely no problem. He's a perfectly fit number one. Marquinhos has been a magnificent servant to this club. He is the fulcrum of the defense. So he's got, on his right, Ramos, who is not quite as quick as he used to be. He's not quite the player he used to be. He remains a very fine, very experienced, very intelligent, very smart, um, streetwise, <laughs> to use a euphemism, kind of defender. And Kimpembe being put there on the left with Marquinhos, um, you know, t- in, in charge of the most important, uh, of basically organizing the line, uh, keeps him in check. Then you've got two superb wingbacks, Hakimi and Mendes. I mean, you know, two superb players. Mm. Then you've got a, a midfield where you've got Vitinha as, as arrived, who, who gives balance. And you've got Verratti, and we all know that Verratti is a gem that we have never quite seen delivering consistently at the level we would expect him to deliver. Given his talent, he should be one of the very best midfielders on the planet. His performances have not always reflected that, but now he's within a system which fits him better. And then up front, we've got the three, obviously, Pape, Neymar and Messi. You put Messi in a role as almost as a nine and a half and a ten, and you've got Neymar and Pape as a kind of um, double pivot up front. Yeah, it's interesting. That, that Honestly, that's that's... It's scary. Um, it's still scary. It's absolutely scary, yes. What struck me and there, though, the when thing- you were talking about Verratti, you might as well have been talking about PSG in Europe for the past few seasons because you're yeah. talking about having all the tools. Everybody presumes that he slash they are going to go on and become the best in Europe and it maybe hasn't quite happened yet. Europe is going to be the litmus test again for this team yeah. this season. But you, you, you see the difference. The, the difference is that in, in, in the past, they've put their faith into bringing in what I would call super managers who were going to mold the team to their own particular tactical outlook. And I'm thinking of Pochettino. I'm thinking of Tuchel. Tuchel, by the way, came so close. Um, and, you know, and before that, we I mean, Unai Emery was a bit of a casting error, but still a very good manager. You know, obviously Ancelotti in the past as well. This time, they've thought, okay, why don't we take somebody whom we know will be able to deal with this kind of of squad, like Galtier? And I I, I think, Richie, we've been talking about Galtier a few times in the past on on this program, because I'm a fan (laughs) and I've been for a very long time. The work is done at Saint-Étienne. The work is done at Lille. The work is done at Nice. Everybody screams, this guy is top top a top top manager um and but he's not one of he's not a super coach he's more in a kind of the deschamps mold 
more expressive perhaps in terms of the football that he wants his teams to play, but he's first and foremost a leader of players. And he's very good at making his players relate to him, whatever their status, statuses can be. Um, you know, mutatis mutandis, I would, I would say he perhaps could be to PSG what Zinedine Zidane has been to Real Madrid. I know it's a huge claim that I'm making now, but he's somebody who knows how to deal with big egos. He's somebody who knows how to have a good balance in the dressing room, at the same time, tactically very aware, knows the game inside out, knows the opponents in European football inside out, fantastic experience of Liga as well. He's a perfect fit. And I have to say, as somebody who is not necessarily that well inclined towards a Qatar-owned club, I've always had this fear that they would bring in somebody like him in the club and they might actually make it work. <laughs> um, which, you know, I, okay, it's a bit tongue-in-cheek when I'm saying here, but I think you get my drift. Yeah, I think he's ideally, ideally suited to that that crazy, crazy club. I, I was re I was reading uh, a line about it was funny enough about Steve Cooper, the Nottingham Forest boss, before uh, Saturday's game West Ham, and in, just in, in coaching terms, he was framed as being something of a facilitator. And I think that's the the same message I'm getting from you about Galtier, in that he gives the players enough leeway to. I guess perform to the op optimal optimal abilities, while also well. You know, yeah, you, you say that. He's not. He's a disciplinarian. Okay. He's very, very tough on his players. But he's tough in a way they can understand and relate to. Galtier was a very fine player himself. He was not the Zidane, of course. You know. um, but, um, yeah, maybe on, you know, like Pochettino, perhaps. Almost that kind of level. Almost. Okay. But he was a very fine footballer himself. <clears throat> and, and he has a knack of getting people on side. He's... Um, He's both tough. He's also very understanding towards young players. He's one of those, you know, he's his mid-50s now, uh, Galtier. But he's not one of those older managers uh, who would have a trouble relating to players from completely different generation with completely different interests uh, who would be, you know, in their late teens or early 20s. He's very good at that. And actually, I think that, in fact, uh, if you look at the number of players that he's involved Young players is involved since the beginning of the season within PSG in those three games. He's already involved more players than Pochettino and Tuchel and Emery had done at a similar stage. So I, I do think he's a really great fit. Uh, I do think that the lack, of, uh, the absence of a kind of starry recruitment uh, is also very telling in the way that they know what they've got. This is what they, they want to carry on with. They do not need yet another upheaval with an, yet another superego landing. Um, and because of all of that, and the fact as well, I repeat that, he is also a very, very sound tactician. So you put all of this together, you think, well, you know, we've got perhaps a winning formula here. Yeah, sounds scary, all right. Sounds uh, pretty, yeah. pretty scary. Just in terms of like... The, the you mentioned at the top the amount of oxygen that that one little discussion on field between okay. Neymar and Mbappe took up. I mean that's in microcosm the the PSG issue is that they take up so much oxygen of the league around them. And in terms of, I guess the outsiders' view, perhaps perhaps not in France. I can't speak to that at all. But certainly, 
the Ligue 1 is, is viewed through the prism of Paris Saint-Germain from this point at the moment. It, like, it's not, unfortunately, Marseille. It's not in the, your, your Monaco's or your Lille's, even though they won the league quite recently. It's Everything is viewed through those navy-tinted glasses, essentially. Well, it's, you know, it's understandable given that you've got uh, three players called Messi, Mbappé and Neymar up front for that team. You know, <laughs> what do you expect? Um I will wait when it comes to Marseille because Marseille will always surprise us and there will be there will be a lot of talk about Marseille as well. But um, they're so far ahead um, that, yes, it's bound to be one of those situations where a club, yes, literally sucks out the oxygen. You know, it's something I've said many times, Ligue 1 cannot live with PSG, uh, but Ligue 1 cannot live without PSG either. It's, it's the situation that the French league has been in ever since 2011 when the Qataris decided to buy the club. Mm. So it's not going to change. Uh, it might be even more pronounced this year if they do well in Europe, which I'm expecting them to do. Um, and of course, it will. people will not be talking about other clubs as much as they should, which is a pity because... I think anybody who watches Ligue 1, has watched Ligue 1 over the last season in particular, will have seen that the the league the, the level has improved. Um, that I think um, there was a record number of goals scored as well in Ligue 1, uh, all time, uh, which is quite remarkable, uh, but which is a fair reflection of the improvement in the quality of football that we are seeing in, in the league, which has been remarkable. There are some really, really lovely teams to watch in France. So this is my 15 seconds of uh, advertisement here. But, you know, watch Strasbourg, watch Clermont. You know, they're small teams. Well, Strasbourg is a huge club in so many ways, but Clermont is a small club. But watch them play, and you realize, actually, it's not that bad at all. I think when you watched uh, Brest-Marseille the other day, I think people would have been surprised how good Brest were, mm. you think, and how positive they were when they had the ball. And it's actually a fun league to watch. But all the oxygen is sucked by, quite normally, by a team that's got, you know, world champions um, in it and um, some of the biggest stars that um, of, of 21st century football. So there's nothing much we can do about that. Football on Off The Ball With Sky Watch Premier League, Women's Super League, Scottish Premiership and much more live on Sky Sports. And many world championships and many Olympic goals does Paul O'Donnell need to win to be the greatest sports player of all time in Ireland? Is there a number? Can we pick a number? Because he's going to do it. OTB AM. Live weekday mornings from 7.30 on the OTB Sports app. Football on Off The Ball. With Sky. Watch Premier League, Women's Super League, Scottish Premiership and much more. Live on Sky Sports. I want to go off on a tangent somewhat. Uh, we will keep, we'll keep our base uh, in Nice, essentially, because one of the stories during the rounds today is that Jim Radcliffe, who's obviously own, part owner of Nice or owner of Nice, and obviously the owner of Ineos, uh, is reportedly, and I don't know how much you know stock we can put in that, but reportedly interested in buying Manchester United. Um, I was just wondering yep. what, the, what the impression is of Jim Radcliffe and what he has done with Nice. Nice weren't... 
<clears throat> like almost similar to Strasbourg. Not a, not not a small club. There has been success there, obviously, in the past. No, no, absolutely. No, and yeah. has you know he he went in there with big money, and obviously with big money come big notions and big ideas that the club is going to ex- you know expand. And they've made their mark in Europe to a degree as well in the last few years. But what is what's the sense of Jim Radcliffe in in the French game? If you talk to uh, Ogisenis fans, they're they're underwhelmed. They were expecting far more. They thought that Radcliffe would use Nice um, as more than a springboard, that you would see that there, there was big potential in that particular club, uh, which is by far the biggest club in that part of France. And, you know, to find a club that is equal or superior in this case, in terms of status, reputation, uh, attractivity, and so forth, you, you're looking at Marseille, which is, you know, quite a long way, a long mm-hmm. way away from this. Um, so people were expect- expecting far more. And I think because they didn't quite understand how Radcliffe was thinking about um, his personal investment uh, into football. Um, so, yes, uh, people have been underwhelmed. They were hoping for a kind of Roman Abramovich, you know, and they realized that what they got was more of a glazer. Um, and I'm not saying, by the way, that uh, Radcliffe, you know, used leverage buyout to get control of the club. That's not the way it went. But he's uh, it's part of his long term strategy of investing into in sport and of building a, uh, a portfolio of clubs of which Nice probably is not going to be um, the flower the Kohinoor, the diamond. Mm. Um, he's always wanted to get something bigger. We know that he went um, when Abramovich was, um, had to sell Chelsea. Radcliffe came in um, or came on the scene very late, too late, but he did come on the scene. And obviously he's looking for a big club somewhere. And he's looking to build a portfolio of an international portfolio of clubs, um, because let's not forget that Radcliffe also owns Lausanne in Switzerland, and he owns Nice, and he clearly wants uh, another club in a big league. Uh, he also has very close links with an, um, a very good club in the Ivory Coast called Racing, Racing David Jean. Um, I'm not too sure if he owns it or if he's a main partner, but in any case, he's, he has very close links. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's 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 part of this restructuring of European football, which is happening before our eyes, which I think people are not aware of, which which, which is completely linked to multiple uh, club ownership. Like which the, is the, the, the city group is 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 the is the one that I think people would be yeah. you know uh, familiar with and but obviously like the Red Bull model um, you only have to look at the the transfers that have gone between the two clubs in the past couple of years uh, even with Sheshko there in, in recent weeks like it's it's quite clear that there are these little fiefdoms being built up all around Europe that involve Correct. number of clubs and <clears throat> but there will be very worrying, Richie. Very, very worrying because you, you're talking about those that people will be aware of, and 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 the Qataris as well have sure. um, also, you know, they they were at Kasselpen, for example, in Belgium, uh, in other places too. Um, and the City Group is, in a way, uh, the most honest because at least we know what we're dealing with. They now have ten or eleven clubs. I mean, you know everywhere from Uruguay to Japan to Melbourne to USA and, and you can carry on like Spain that. But it is it is something which is happening all across the board and in all divisions. And I think people are not aware of that. 
It probably is happening in Ireland, by the way. I would like to have a look at that, uh, who is actually starting to get interested in clubs and buying shares. Um, I know, for example, of one case of a Russian investor uh, who has got uh, an interest, direct interest, in seven clubs in Europe, lower division clubs, and who is also somebody who is very important on the gambling market. Now you can, you know, I say that and I hope that there is a little, you know, cold runs down your spine when I mm. say that. And I'm not saying people like Radcliffe or City Football um, Group or whatever are trying to rig the game. What I'm saying is that the very um, essence of the integrity of the game is being put in question here by what is going on. Um, I believe that at the moment, in terms of multiple club ownership, when you're talking about top divisions in Europe, you're talking about oh, well over 200 clubs. Wow. 200. <clears throat> That's it's astonishing. Absolutely, it's, uh, it's absolutely astonishing. It's a subject that I'm, I'm working on um, with a couple of friends of mine. I, I do hope to come up with uh, something interesting about, about it in, in not too long. Um, but there is a huge problem on that on that side, and it's something which also is enabled and facilitated by the current rules and regulation, uh, both by local uh, member associations of FAs mm. and by UEFA and by FIFA. There, there is no, you know, you remember like people like Duchatelet, for example, sure. had um, multiple interests, and you can uh, Gerard Lopez. I mean, that's unbelievable, and that's on the record, and believe me, um, your lawyers will agree with me, it's absolutely absolutely astonishing that somebody like Jean Lopez um, can be in charge of Lille, Boavista, Moucron, was in charge of Bordeaux at the same time, when you look at his track record in football, and this is allowed to happen? I mean, you know, fair play to him and to them, they're using the regulations. I'm not saying they're breaching any regulations, which is where I've put the lawyers on my side. Um, but on the other hand, what is happening is totally wrong. It's an assault, and I mean an assault, on the integrity of the game. You cannot have people who own more than one club. You cannot have people... I mean, we're seeing all these investment funds at the moment coming from America and taking 20% here, 30% here, we see a texter, for example, John Texter, you know, who suddenly arrives, oh, hello, I'm the Messiah, I'm going to save everything. Oh, yeah, but you have your own capital in this club and this club and this club and that club. How does this work? <clears throat> this bell, that bell's a little bit hard to unring, though, uh, essentially, because you've got people who are off, uh, operating then in different jurisdictions, uh, which obviously would have their own individual laws, their own individual laws as they pertain to football. And on top of that, the money that they are bringing to the game, you would reason that football authorities, be it UEFA, FIFA, even only would be would be scared to back away from that because it's guaranteed cash as far as they're concerned. Richie. The only reason why these people are bringing money in the game is to take money out of the game. Oh, right? sure. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not disagreeing okay. there. Yeah. They're, not in, they're not generous investors who have got the best interests of the clubs at heart. They're in there to make a buck. This is the only way that you can understand their involvement. Ratcliffe doesn't care about Nice. Ratcliffe doesn't care 
about X, Y, or Z, right? It doesn't. I mean, this is the whole bloody nonsense that we have to deal with. Bully, Bully is not a Chelsea fan. Wake up, guys. He's not a Chelsea fan. He's a very smart US investor who has seen an opportunity in European football. And by the way, that's his absolute right. There's nothing wrong with that. What is wrong is the fact that the people who have got the regulatory bodies who could who are there and could actually say, you know what? No, we don't think it's okay for the same person or the same investment fund to have money in, in, involved in separate clubs in different leagues. Who could be, uh, because what happens? It, there's the possibility of match rigging, which you've got to think about. There's the possibility of also financial arrangements between those sister clubs or brother clubs, whatever you want to call them, by which, for example, something we saw in Italy, by which the value of, of players is inflated in both senses in order to cook the books. We've seen that happening. I'm not saying these people are doing it. I'm saying this is the potentiality. Then we've got the possibility as well of using clubs purely as feeder clubs and to make money in the transfer market by diverting the money made from transferring players from one club to the next out of the club's books into other companies. I'm not going to give a name here, but I've got one which I, I have in mind and I know exactly what happened. And this happened in European football. It was allowed to happen because multiple club ownership is allowed by UEFA and FIFA. Despite all they've said on the subject, saying it was a bad thing. Of course, it's a bad thing. Now do something about it, guys. Philippe, I look forward to seeing what you have in the pipeline <laughs> on this subject, because it's one that I could honestly sit here with you and, and go over for another few hours. The lawyers potentially well, yes, won't be that happy with us to do it live. The, make sure you bring the lawyers yeah, in, because yeah. otherwise, you know, and let's never do this such a thing live, because we would be in massive, massive trouble. We'll, we'll keep tabs on it anyway. We'll keep uh, somebody, you know, fact-checking in the corner as, as we go on next time. But Philippe, it's been an absolute pleasure as always to speak, and thank you so much uh, for taking time out to talk to us. And don't forget, football here on Off The Ball is brought to you by Sky. Watch over 400 games this season from the Premier League, WSL, Scottish Premiership, and EFL live on Sky Sports. Football on Off The Ball With Sky Get all the football you love in one place across Sky Sports BT Sport and Premier Sports